0: Hello everyone, welcome to the 6th episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role playing games, and specifically, playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Colin,
1: Hello everyone,
2: Mordai, Good evening,
0: and Ruben.
1: Hey diddly
2: ho there.
0: We are all moderators or administrators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have Determining What Makes a Good Play-By-Post System, The Ebb and Flow of Mythweavers, and Part 3 of our Player Archetype Series all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first topic on the agenda is determining what makes a a good play-by-post system. So... Before we get into what makes a good system, I want to ask you guys, what are some systems that you really, really like for play-by-post?
3: All right. Well, uh, for me, I think my best and most favorite play-by-post system has to be Fate. It's a great narrative system that still has enough crunch to kind of really nicely detail a character. It doesn't require any sort of special initiative, so you can just play play and post in a first-come, first-come format, and... Uh, Best of all, it's got zones, so you don't need a map or anything if combat breaks out. Should also probably shout out Savage Worlds, which I also love, especially for tabletop. Although, I think we'll go into into it a little bit later about why this system needs a bit more tweaking. At its base, it's a great system for play-by-post, but due to the way the initiative works and the kind of requirement for a map, you have to do a couple of tweaks for it. That and lately... Big fan of the new Shadowrun Anarchy, which is a new version of Shadowrun that strips out a good eighty percent of the rules while still leaving you with enough crunch that it feels like Shadowrun. Only it's Shadowrun that resolves a lot more quickly and works a lot more better works a lot better
1: in play by post.
0: Alrighty, Colin, do you have any particular systems that stand out to you?
1: Well, as has been mentioned in the past, I'm a huge fan of the Stars Without Number system just because. It flows well. It's easy to run for a sandbox system. But then there's also a system I haven't actually gotten to play yet, but I'm really anticipating now, is the Planet Mercenary system from the webcomic author of Schlock Mercenary. So everything I've read in it so far, it's got a lot of the familiarity you see with a lot of the original systems that everyone's familiar with, but it's got some new twists that I think are going to be pretty fun. Mordai?
2: Well, off the top of my head, I'd have to say that my favorite system is 7th Sea. Now, that probably pegs me as a certain swashbuckling type adventurer, so I'll also go with Rices as a good backup for something that's entirely narrative-focused, uh, simple dice rules, and very easy to start in one place and go wherever the adventure takes you without having to worry about interrupts and compels and all of the other claptrap that goes along with more complicated systems. Uh, But I'll also mention that if you love Dungeons & Dragons, the older editions, particularly my favorite is the Red Box, play really well with play-by-post.
3: You know, speaking of D&D, D&D 5e works pretty darn well for play-by-post as well. Not nearly as many interrupts. Uh, They're limited in turns. You can do combat without a map. Works pretty well.
0: Absolutely. I've run several games using 5th edition so far, and they've been working exceptionally well for me. But... The two systems that I would like to point out specifically are the Cortex system, which is probably more commonly known as the Leverage or Firefly system, but those two settings are based off of the Cortex system, and I've found that that one works really well in play-by-post. And then I wouldn't say this one necessarily works well in play-by-post, but I really, really like it, and that is Iron Kingdoms. I, never, I can never get enough of Iron Kingdoms.
3: Yeah, uh, I also ran, I think, Nate, we were the only two guys that had leverage games on the weave at one point, and I will totally second that. Cortex, especially leverage, works really well, especially with the flashback system. So instead of kind of holding up and having to do planning up front, you can just do it in the back end when you need it. I also kind of right now want to shout out Blades in the Dark, which is my new kind of favorite love. It's run on the uh, Powered by the Apocalypse system, It's all about doing heists in this weird sort of like steampunk meets dark horror Victorian London analog where you're all members of like a thieving crew or something like that. And it has a system called the clock that just works fantastically.
0: All right. And with that. Let's talk about what makes those systems so good at what they do. So play-by-post is a different medium from sitting down at a table where you can do dice rolls immediately and interrupt people, and play-by-post doesn't really work well with those types of things like we've talked about in previous episodes. So what things set these systems apart that make them so good at what they do?
3: Well, I think up top, any system requires precise movement, you need to know where you are within five feet or so, tends to be a little more difficult because you have to find a way to integrate a map. And once you've integrated a map, that will slow things down. You also have to figure out a way to let players move where they need to move, which you can either use like a grid to call that out or another program that lets you move tiles independently of each other. Whereas games like Fate, Fate uses zones, which doesn't require any precise movement, and therefore it's a lot easier to kind of skip a map. I'll also point out if you like the D&D style games, you can steal the movement rules from 13th Age, which just use nearby, engaged, disengaged, and far away. They're a lot more simpler, but they'll still work with D&D.
2: Absolutely, and those are certainly themes that I use when I run Dungeons & Dragons games. I'll still use the maps for when you're exploring a dungeon, but as soon as the combat music starts, it really only matters how close you are to a particular opponent um, and whether your teammates are close by or not.
0: I think any form of D&D, if you're trying to play it rules as written, will run into that problem where maps can slow things down immensely.
2: It's not just the maps, but I think that leads us right into our next thought, which is the interaction between the players even if you know where you're going precisely on a map from point A to point B, if you have to wait for the other six players and the GM to potentially interrupt your movement with some other action, say an attack of opportunity or even a, a uh, assisting action, that's going to slow the game down tremendously.
3: Yeah, if at all possible, you want the roles to... Basically, you want it to break down to one player role, one DM role, resolves the entire kind of action round for that character. The more rolls you add, especially back and forth rolls, the longer it's going to take.
2: And if you can even eliminate the DM portion of that and allow the players, the agency, to dictate the action as they see it from their one dice roll, then you're even further ahead of the game.
3: Yeah. And in games that do have kind of an interrupt system, you kind of have to be pretty liberal about forging ahead and then doing a quick rewrite of reality if an interrupt would change something.
0: I think Shadowrun is particularly notorious for that sort of thing.
3: Not to mention, combat takes like four rolls. You need an attack roll, then you need a damage roll, the player gets a defense roll, or the defender gets a defense roll, then the defender also gets a um, a soak roll. And then you add in extra initiative passes.
2: That is one of the weaknesses of the original first edition 7th C system, is it has initiative phases and you have to wait your turn in line, waiting for people to post and play by post is practically game death in and of itself.
3: Yeah, you definitely want a system that you can kind of just do first come, first serve initiative, or at least some kind of variant of that. Yeah, nothing sucks worse than having a game die because you had to wait two weeks for the guy on vacation to post.
0: I think that segues very nicely into our next point, which is that you want to make sure that the system you're using allows for plenty of player agency. So you want to make sure that every post moves things forward in some way. And systems that lend themselves well to that can help a game stay alive and move forward very smoothly.
3: Oh, just to jump back a little bit about the initiative issue, one system you can look at to steal from is Marvel Heroic Roleplay, where the person who goes gets to name who goes next and so it's pretty easy to start naming players who are active and for players to start colluding. It's basically just another variant of uh, first come, first serve.
1: Colin, any Colin, thoughts on those? Y'all covered it pretty effectively.
0: Alrighty, just wanted to make sure we didn't miss anything. Mordi, I think you were about to say something.
2: I was just about to note that that Marvel Heroic role-playing idea really plays well with a system like, say, even 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, where you frequently have players uh, jumping on with interrupts to assist you, that uh, they can do so in a way that makes sense because you know pretty much if player A is posting then player B is going to glom on and help out and player C may glom on with player B. And so you can set up the initiative order in a way that maximizes the party's utility.
3: It's also nice because it gives the DM a way to jump in the middle instead of having to go at the same point every time so the DM can kind of bridge a gap in posting. Another thing we should probably talk about is the cost and availability of a system. Uh, I found, generally, if I use a system that has an SRD or some other version of free rules, uh, it's definitely kind of more popular than something that didn't get printed a lot and has a very expensive book.
0: Iron Kingdoms is a very good example of that. The original Iron Kingdoms was built off of Dungeons & Dragons 3.5, but those books are actually extremely hard to find nowadays. They don't sell them in stores, and the only place I've actually seen them being sold is through eBay. And they go for anywhere from 10% to 50% higher than MSRP. So while it's a great system, people don't have the access to it that they would like.
3: A few systems that do have very good SRDs are Fates, Dungeon World, good old 3.5 D&D, and Pathfinder as well.
2: Many of the rules-like systems, such as Risis, which I mentioned earlier, also have the rules completely free and available online.
0: Another one that comes uh, to mind is The Window, which is a extremely narrative-driven system, but their rules are also available completely free online.
3: Uh, a good fantasy one is Warrior Rogue Mage. That also has is completely free, and it's a great little fantasy system that's really simple and works well for play.
2: Important point, when you have multiple systems that you're considering is what's the complexity level? How much am I committing all of the new players who might want to join my game to read before they understand how to play?
0: So systems with like weird rules like one of the ones in the notes here is Dread, which is an amazing system, but it requires that you pull pieces out of a Jenga tower, which is not really feasible on play-by-post.
3: Yeah, that can uh, yeah, not hard to do Savage Worlds is also a little guilty of this in that you need do a lot of stuff with card draws, and it's a lot harder to do a card draw on play-by-post. I mean, in the past, I've actually resulted to doing a D-54 table and rolling on that for cards.
0: All right, and one other thing I want to bring up is we you want to focus, for play-by-post especially, you want to focus on systems that allow you to focus more on the narrative rather than the crunchy rules bits. So you want to be able to have a system that has the story within it and every post can move that story forward in some way. Something that comes to mind is fate and their compels, which allows you to kind of force the opposing group, person, whatever it is to act in a certain way and continues moving combat or even just the story forward.
3: Not to mention, in a post, you can also create advantages, which let you establish narrative facts. So instead of waiting for the GM to tell you what's around, you can just declare certain things are around by making a declaration.
0: All right. Do we have any closing thoughts before moving on to the next topic?
1: I think I'm good. That covers it. Good on my end.
0: All right. So our next topic for the evening is the ebb and flow of Mythweavers. So before we get into this, I want to explain a little bit of what we mean by the ebb and flow. So Mythweavers, the way it works is you have people posting all the time from all over the world at various times of day, regardless of what's going on elsewhere. So there are certain times during the day, during the week, during the month, and even during the year where... The activity of the weave changes depending on what's going on in the real world. So for exa- as an example, in the summer, at least, well, yeah, in the summer, people want to go outside more, so they don't spend quite as much time sitting at their computer making posts. So that shows that shows an upswing or a downswing in activity on the site whereas in the winter, people stay inside and they spend more time at their computers, so that's an upswing in activity. Using that information, we can kind of pinpoint good and bad times to do certain things on Mythweavers. So we'll start with Colin on this one, and well, the first thing I want to talk about is when should you post an advertisement based on that ebb and flow?
1: What I've always found is... Always first thing of the week is usually the best, Monday or Tuesday. The weekends, you tend to see a downturn in activity on the weave just because it's the weekend. People are out, they're doing stuff. They may not see your really cool ad if you throw it up on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday.
2: Likewise, it's important to avoid the major holidays, Christmas, New Year's, Those are the first two that come to mind uh, where people are unavailable. U.S. Thanksgiving, there are a lot of U.S.-based players. People have commitments, have family, have celebrations that they want to go to. If you start an advertisement right around those times, it's entirely likely that you'll only get half or less of the typical applicant pool that you would expect.
3: I'd also add Labor Day and Memorial Day. Those are often days in the U.S. when people go camping over the weekend.
1: The
0: 4th of July is one that we had just recently, and that one comes to mind as well.
1: And that's why my games are usually at one post a week to account for holidays.
3: And you know about posting adverts, always make sure you're going to be accessible for the last few days and the first few days of your adverts, because you're going to get a ton of posts on those di- dates.
1: Especially when a game master does something like makes a grading rubric and gets flooded with applicants.
2: Who would do that?
0: Hey now, I made sure to take care of that before it became a problem.
1: Sounds like you almost believe that when you say it. I learned it from watching you.
2: Really the point is that if you're going to plan to be out hiking in the Appalachian Mountains and completely inaccessible by phone or any other means, carrier pigeons are not going to do for answering all of the questions that your players have as they're trying to finalize their applications.
1: Would that make it play-by-pigeon? And moving on. (laughs) Come on, that was funny.
0: Colin is not one to tolerate puns. After
1: after how many times I've been stuck with that in general? No, not so much.
2: Oh, After Dark's going to be fun tonight.
1: I can already feel the dimmer humor coming out.
0: So another point I want to bring up is, especially because this is particularly relevant to myself, is people go to school and university So not everyone on the Mythweavers is a full-fledged, 100% functioning adult. So you end up with students as well, and during the fall and spring, you can see a slowdown in activity when people start going back to school, especially around exam season, when they're studying really hard, they're doing final projects, term papers are due, so those Times of year can require a bit more understanding when it comes to people not posting as frequently as they once did.
3: Convention seasons also, another time things tend to slow down. People don't post much when they go into Comic Con or Gen Con or a couple of the other big game shows.
0: Out of curiosity, about what time of year is that season? I've never really paid that much attention.
3: Now.
1: Yeah, now.
0: That makes sense. Gen- E3, Gen Con, Comic Con. Yeah, they're pretty much all july or the month before or after
1: it tends to wrap up about midway through autumn
3: yeah your big ones are clustered around july august uh although i think origins is in june
0: and dragon con is at the very beginning of september
1: they're all pretty much structured around when college students won't be in class i never thought about it that way Almost went to Dragon Con last year. It was the last week before classes began for most of the country.
2: Now, if it sounds like all of these recommendations are at odds with each other, they really are. Mythweavers is a very diverse player base, and so you can't necessarily assume that everyone is going to have the same schedule as you do when you set out your plans and your uh, level 1 to 20 world domination D&D tour where everyone's going to post at least once or twice a day. Not everyone can keep up with that type of thing. Maybe not even enough for the group that you want. Temper your expectations accordingly because you could get somebody who is a 40-something parent of three who coaches baseball on Saturdays. Or you could have the college student who's good to go 90% of the year up until the uh, final exam in their accounting class. Who knows?
0: And I will take the time to mention – That, as always, communication is is vital, regardless of what time of year it is and what's going on. If your players keep you informed and you keep your players informed, things generally should work out fine.
1: I think a good way to look at it is we can predict the ebb and flow of the weave about as well as weathermen can predict the weather. We can point out general patterns, but it's equivalent to saying it's going to rain today and then it's sunny you know, the next day. Y'all know what I meant. Weather, prediction, Evan flow the weave.
0: (laughs) I got you, Colin. I understood.
2: You might as well roll dice to figure it out.
0: Exactly. You could expect zero posts over the weekend and instead get 20. That would be a lot for a single game, but it could happen.
3: Yeah, the only certain one I've seen is Christmas. Christmas, New Year's, every game I've run has always slowed down around that time.
0: All right, any closing thoughts before we move on to our final topic for the
2: evening?
3: If someone slows down, you might send them a PM just to ask them uh, what's going
1: on.
2: Never attribute to malice what can be explained by other commitments.
0: All right, and with that, we move on to part three of our Player Archetype series. This week, we're going to be talking about the Rules Lawyer. And the rules lawyer is someone who believes the book is the Bible when it comes to playing their game, and they will not hesitate to whip out whatever relevant book they have and tell you, no, that's not how that actually works, here's how it really works. And they will expect everyone else at the table to go along with them, except for rule zero, which I think is the number one thing that rules lawyers tend to miss which is that the DM or GM has the final say on anything. So how do we deal with the rules lawyer?
3: Well, option one is you recruit them. You give them some other rules-focused task and have them run that and adjudicate, adjudicate that and kind of give them something to focus on. That way, they're not focused so much on telling you, no, it doesn't work that way. They're focusing more on what they're focusing on. Uh, I've had them do stuff like, you know, run monsters or even just run initiative. Just give them something to focus on.
0: I think I can confidently say that free time is the rules lawyer's best friend as they have enough time to look up whatever rule is relevant. So giving them something to occupy their time doesn't give them the opportunity to bog things down.
1: Honestly, that's why I like rules light systems too, because... There's less definitive, this is how this works, period. There's a lot more room for interpretation. You can kind of say, oh, well, you know, I see it this way, not open to debate, as opposed to, I love 3.5e e Dungeons & Dragons, but, God, it's rules-heavy sometimes. So there's a lot of definitive statements in that rule set.
3: Uh, one thing I've found that helps is if you do change a rule, keep an official house rules document. Like, write up your house rules just as regular rules, and that gives the rules lawyer another set of rules to reference, kind of running things how you want them to be run.
2: Yeah, that is one of the difficulties about play-by-post as compared to the tabletop. At the tabletop, you can say, this is the way we're going because we don't have time to sit here and argue about it. There's plenty of time for play-by-post for people to go consult whatever splat book has, whatever arcane rule they want to fit the situation, So in play-by-post, you really need to establish the expectation that in order to keep the game going, I'm going to make a decision, and it's not up for debate. And if that's because you don't have time to go look it up because you want to keep the game moving, just say, I'm not going to go look this up right now. Here's what we're doing, and I'll go look it up and make sure that I did it right in the future. And if not, I'll fix it. And if so, then we know the rule.
0: It can definitely help to know whatever system you're running inside and out when you're running it, especially on play-by-post, because being able to quickly and accurately answer those types of questions can make your life a lot easier in terms of keeping the game running.
3: Yeah, that's for sure.
0: So because we're talking about the rules lawyer, I want to very briefly tangent off and ask you guys, what are your thoughts on, on rules as written versus rules as intended now i know this is a huge topic that we could probably spend an entire podcast on but just very briefly give me your thoughts on rules as written versus rules as intended and i'll pose that question into the chat as well i'm curious what your guys' thoughts are
3: i'm definitely a rules as intended guy uh you know sometimes books have dumb rules or they have rules that are unclear And generally I've found if people keep insisting on rules as written, they're looking to get some sort of kind of unfair advantage and they know it. So I go with rules as intended every time.
2: I'm a narrative system sort of person. And to me, the code is more like guidelines. I don't follow the rules as they're written on the page. If the rules as they're written on the page don't make sense for the situation that we're in, if it makes perfect sense, I'll follow it to the letter.
3: Well, I think rules as written is what gives us such monsters as pun-pun.
2: Colin, your thoughts? I don't
1: have many thoughts on it, honestly. It's honestly one of those things I kind of look at as per the situation, but I also haven't had to deal with it a lot.
0: So Harmonic asks, could you quote a rule, for example? And I don't really have a rule off the top of my head that I could use as an example, but I know personally I tend to go rules as intended. Or, as Tiffany Corda puts it, rules as I understand them. So when I read a rule and I come away with a certain understanding, that's how I'm going to explain it to my players. And if anyone asks me about the rule, that's also how I'm going to explain it. So I guess I'm kind of rules as intended, but also rules as my own interpretation.
3: An example rule, you get in 3.5 you can actually create a peasant-powered railgun because the rules state that you can pass something as a free action. So if you line up an infinite number of people side by side, they can pass it down the line so fast that it becomes like a uh, huge projectile.
0: I honestly don't know what to say to that. That is just so absurd. I don't know how anyone could interpret it that way.
3: It's from deep in the weeds the character optimization boards where they just try to make the most ridiculous things ever. Probably a better example, in 5e, there's a way to get your carry weight so high that you can start using horses as ranged weapons. Obviously, the rules probably don't intend this.
2: Technically, a cow is a ranged weapon. The French proved that.
1: It only took six episodes to get the Monty Python's reference. That's actually kind of impressive when you think about it. All
0: right, and before we move on to the game of the week, are there any final thoughts on anything we've talked about today so far?
3: More people should be using Fade as a system for play-by-post.
0: I'm definitely in agreement on that one. It's a great system that does not get used nearly enough.
2: All the people in the group need to have a common feel for how much crunch they want in what they're doing. You can have a real fun game that has no rules at all, and you can have a real fun game that requires you to rule every single inch of movement from one point to the other part of the dungeon.
3: I guess it just kind of boils down to know your players and talk about the game before it actually starts.
0: Absolutely, that pre-game discussion can make or break your game. If you start out on the wrong foot, then the game basically has no chance right from the get-go. All right, and with that, it is time for this week's Game of the Week. This week's Game of the Week is The Red Riding Hoods being run by Bereth. The Red Riding Hoods is a game using the Dungeon World system, which is fantastic for this sort of game. The Red Riding Hoods is set in a world inspired by the stories of the Brothers Grimm, full of vast and untamed wilderness, strange magic, dangerous creatures, and more. The players of this game will be wearers of the Red Hood and will be hunting down monsters from tales as old as time. Of particular note, Bareth is going to be using the Perilous Wild supplement for Dungeon World, which will allow for a handcrafted world that will allow for a lot of flexibility in terms of exploration and discovery. The Red Riding Hood's application period closes on July 31st, so be sure to get those applications in. Now, before we move on to the Q&A session, I'm curious, have any of you guys actually used Dungeon World in the past?
3: I have, and it's a great, great system. And it fits play-by-post pretty well.
2: Colin, Mordai? I feel it's a particularly solid system for play-by-post. Um, it does require a certain amount of GM intervention, though, on occasion. So uh, that's something to watch out for.
1: Best I can say is I've heard of it.
0: That's kind of where I'm coming from. I've not—I've heard of Dungeon World, but not actually used it. So I was curious to see what everybody's thoughts were.
3: Yeah, uh, I will point out it does has an uh, does have an SRD,
2: which is conveniently linked in the chat and will be available in the thread on the MythWeavers forum after this podcast is done.
0: Absolutely, and thank you for reminding me. I will go ahead and put the link to this week's Game of the Week in the Discord chat, and for those of you listening to the recording, that will be available in the referenced link section of the forum post. All right, and now it is time for everybody's favorite time of the evening, the question and answer segment. So you can ask us anything you want, be it about Mythweavers, about games, game systems. It can be about anything we've talked about in this episode or previous episodes, and we'll be happy to talk about those more. So bring on the questions.
1: Tiffany Corda asks, do you think there's a system that's just too crunchy for the weave? Um, personally, I really don't. As long as it's going to work for play-by-post and everyone knows what they're getting into... I think it's still possible to have good fun with an extremely crunchy system.
3: Well, maybe Fatal, but no one should ever play that game, ever.
0: I think Shadowrun is a good example of an extremely crunchy system that can still have success on the weave.
2: Ultimately, it just goes back to the point we were making earlier about setting expectations that align across all of the players and the game masters so that you can meet the needs of whatever system that you bring to the table. If those needs mean that you need to post back and forth frequently, be prepared to do so.
3: I will point out, no system's too crunchy, but a couple are definitely going to make for slower games than others.
0: All right, Harmonic has a rather in-depth question. So Harmonic wants to know, what is our preferred source of magic? Be it life, souls, weave, ley lines, blood, wellsprings, artifacts, crystals... So on and so forth. Uh, harmonic wants to know, what is our preferred source of magic? I like sources of magic that are kind of weird. So I'm trying to think how exactly to explain it. But I like magic that comes from somewhere that isn't very common. So like, I'll use Pond as an example. And for those of you who don't know, Pond is the setting I designed. A lot of the magic comes from a thing called the Veil. And the Veil is, in certain forms, can be deadly, but in other forms can be extremely useful in terms of magic. So I like magic to kind of be a double, double-edged sword. I don't want it to just be this all-powerful force that lets you do whatever you want.
3: Uh, I prefer a weave or kind of pervasive life force source for my magic but that's likely because I started with Shadowrun and D&D, and that's kind of the source they use.
2: I find that the source of magic is very much tied to the setting of the game and the particular world that you're trying to run it in. And the better it's tied in, the more the players feel how to play the magic as part of their character. The reason I'm trying to make this point is because I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 as well, and you get into intense arguments about arcane magic and divine magic and psionics and all of these different systems that effectively do the same thing. And you have people passionately arguing that they're absolutely different and not related to each other at all. And you have people passionately arguing that they're just different faces of the same coin. And those arguments just hurt my head because really, we're just trying to have a game here, guys. So can't we just all get along? So, the better the magic system is tied into the setting of the story and not just an abstract, the more fun it will have. Uh, and I think 7th Sea is a great example of this. There are actually multiple different magic systems tied into the first edition rules. You had blood magic from the French-like civilization. You had shape-shifting magic from the Russian-like civilizations. They were all drawn on what the old tales were from that part of Europe. And yes, as Tiffany Corda points out, all of them have that evil double-edged sword mentality that makes it not necessarily something that you want to go pull out in every situation.
1: I think I'm with Nathan. I like weird magic systems as long as I can understand how it meshes with the world.
3: I concur. The magic has to fit in the world. I mean, if it's tacked on, it's just going to seem tacked on.
0: All right. And Geekahedron... Wants to know is there any Warhammer on Mythweavers, and I I don't know for sure, but I would be willing to bet that yes, it's out there somewhere. Stuff like HeroScape and X Wing, I could I could see it being played on Mythweavers. I don't see any reason why it couldn't. I think the biggest problem you'll run into is a lot of those systems require you to accurately measure inches to know how far things can move and aim, which On a computer screen, an inch for you is not necessarily an inch for someone else.
3: Yeah, you have to grid them or use a hex or something to even kind of be able to do it.
0: But beyond that, I could definitely see it being done. I think that's a great idea.
3: I did actually have a friend who played the Warhammer tabletop, but then they used Mythweavers to do kind of role-playing encounters between battles. That worked pretty
2: well.
0: All right. Harmonic has a follow-up to their earlier question. What do you think of drawing magic requiring stamina rather than just a pool? Drawing into it, draining the caster in more ways than one. And what about areas without magic or where it's difficult to draw magic from? I think that's a fine addition to what we've talked about earlier. You kind of don't want magic to be like this all-powerful force. You want it to be either not omnipresent or you want it to not be omnipowerful.
3: Uh, I think, again, it depends on the setting. Uh, if I'm running D&D, I probably don't ma- want magic to be very draining. If I'm running Shadowrun, I probably most certainly do. It just depends on what sort of genre and feel you're going for. If you're going for big darn heroes kicking butt all over the place, magic probably shouldn't drain you. But if you're doing something like Dresden Files, where it's a lot harder to kind of use it a lot, then you want it to be draining.
2: Even in Dungeon Dragons, though, I'm... Personally, not a big fan of the six minute adventuring day where everyone goes Nova on the first encounter and then sits and rests. So, there should be some level of limits on what people can do.
3: I'd actually argue that's more of a systematic thing and less of a um, like fluff thing.
2: Well, again, the rules are more like guidelines, and there are parts of Unearthed Arcana and uh, auxiliary slat books that you can use to try and shape even the Dungeons and Dragons system in a direction where uh, magic doesn't scale at the uh, second or third order power compared to the linear of everybody else.
3: I think a little bit how draining magic is also becomes how you pace the game. If you're looking for a pace that requires people to kind of try and stretch resources thin, maybe magic should be a little more draining, whereas if you want one where people could just keep going forever, maybe it doesn't drain at all.
0: All right, and Judah Bega asks when running a politic or social heavy game, do you prefer to run them with individualized encounters with a few required or engineered group settings or the opposite or something else entirely? Let me have a second to process that question. If you guys understand the question, go ahead, but I want to read it again.
3: No, I'm still
2: trying, I'm still to, still think. trying to think. I'll jump on it. First, and then you guys can uh, can follow on and tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, I do run a lot of 7th C, so that means that there's a lot of intrigue going on. And absolutely, splitting the party, typically a bad thing to do at tabletop, you can run somewhat effectively in play-by-post where you can have separate threads for each of the actions. And frequently, the groups want to split up and maneuver and intrigue on their own and search out what's going on and and tease apart the puzzle and you should enable that to the degree that makes them comfortable. If you try and force everybody to be in the same room at the same time all the time, it can be fun, but sometimes it can turn into Clue, the movie, which is a little more over-the-top fun than you might necessarily want for your political social intrigue-type game where it's a very serious setting.
3: Well, social and political games tend to be a bit more narrative, so I just tend to go with what the narrative suggests the narrative suggests it's going to be a big group fight, then that's what I do. Uh, And if it suggests there should be five different little threads going on, that's what I do.
0: I think you guys nailed it. I don't really have anything to add.
3: I've got
1: nothing additional.
0: Colin asks if the next book of the Dresden Files is out yet. And no, it is not out yet. I wish it was, but it's not.
1: Thank you, Nathan. We needed a question. (laughs) Next day seven, I'm letting the zombies eat you.
3: Well, Kimmy says, how many tacos do you think you can eat in one setting? And assume there are typical tex mex beef taco. Well, I know for a fact I can do at least 24.
1: My voice is Mexican. I get actual Mex tacos, so a lot.
0: If I starved myself all day before sitting down to do so, I could probably approach 15 or so.
3: I should mention those are 24 kind of like real Mexican style tacos.
2: Right, we have to qualify it by saying that it's a tortilla that's somewhere around six inches in diameter or so, and then I could probably polish off the dozen-plus if I was really putting my mind to it. If we're talking those tortillas that you get in nationwide chains that I won't mention due to potential issues with copyright or endorsement infringement, I'm not going to be able to to put away a dozen of those.
3: No, because I'd get sick after four or five.
2: It'll sure
1: detox your system, though. Just clear it right out.
3: That's
0: one way to do it, for sure. (laughs) All right, Harmonic wants to know, how do you handle groups of players that end up as murder hobos? You probably shouldn't let them do that.
1: Uh, I shut the game down. Unless the The point of the game is to let them be murder hobos, and then while you're fulfilling the purpose. Damn it, I stepped on Colin twice. I'll be quiet for a moment so you can talk.
2: Well, I was just going to mention Ultima, and uh, the fuzz shows up and curb stomps them.
0: Rocks fall, everybody dies, or I guess if that is the purpose of the game, then you're doing something right.
2: Yeah, I'm just
3: too old and have too little free time to run a game for people who aren't going to, you know, take what I'm running seriously, or at least play in the manner I expect them to.
1: We actually missed a question from Ergo. How do you all go about straddling the line between the fantastical and the believable slash realistic line in games?
0: That's a really good question. I think it starts with the system. So if you're doing D&D, then that is very firmly in the camp of Fantastical. But if you're doing something more like, I'm trying to think of a good example, I guess Mirror Shades Shadowrun, then that tends to err closer to Believable even though, you know, there's trolls and elves and magic and all of that stuff, but you play it more seriously. So it starts with the system, I think, and then it goes to the concept. So you have to figure out if your concept will fit in whatever level of fantastical or believable you're going for.
3: I tend to go with the old adage, would this look cool in a movie? If it's too boring because it's too realistic, I don't generally do that. But it would look super goofy in a movie. I also don't want to go that far. So that's my gauge. Would it look cool in a movie?
2: Honestly, the games that probably tend closer to the realistic spectrum are the ones that are set in the current or modern era, because people are familiar with what can possibly happen in reality now, and so it's not a shock to them to not have the, the trolls and the elves and the magic and the, the other claptrap that typically goes along with basically glorified uh, make-believe, which is what we're doing here. Probably the most common realistic game that I've seen, and take realistic with a grain of salt, because the first thing I'm going to say is zombies. The, The typical zombie apocalypse game that rolls around in the 20th or 21st century tends to be, aside from the fact that you have the living dead chasing you around, fairly on the realistic front in terms of what resources you have available and what you can and can't do.
3: Well, you need at least enough realism where you're paying nominal lip service at least to physics and other just real world assumptions that it's really hard not to assume. I mean, you can't have a setting where, I don't know, guns don't, you know, fire or something like that. It has to at least kind of be believable enough that you can imagine what it looks like.
0: So RMB asks, Is there an actual way to include elves, dwarves, orcs, etc. without doing Shadowrun? And if you did it in, for example, D20 Modern, the closest thing I could come up with would be genetic modification. And even then, you're kind of pushing the boundaries of like what D20 Modern can handle. Alright, I think we have time for just a couple more questions.
1: Also, we have a request, Nathan, from Tiffany Corda to sing the song of Grok.
0: There will be no singing on this podcast.
1: But Nathan, you're the only one that knows the song of Grok.
0: I don't know the song
2: of Grok. But father...
3: Oh, baby, you know the song of Grok. He's one bad mother.
1: I can just feel Nathan through the internet wondering why he ever thought this was a good idea.
3: Well, the best part is
0: I can edit out all of this.
1: Oh, well, I'll remember. And we'll hold it against you. All right, one or two more questions, folks. We might let Nathan off the hook for now.
0: Jimmy asks, what kind of shampoo does Grok use? He uses the blood of dwarves.
3: With just a hint of lavender.
0: <laughs> it's tough on grease, don't you know?
1: The lavender or the dwarf blood?
0: Yes. Tiffany Corda wants to know what that shampoo smells like, and it smells like victory.
1: All right, one more question, folks.
0: All right, this is a good one. If you could bring one D&D skill to real life or spell, what would it be, and how would you use it?
3: Prestidigitation, no question. My beer is always cold, my broccoli tastes like steak, and cleaning
1: house only takes five minutes. Took it right out of my mouth. I I seriously
0: can't come up with a better answer than that. Press the digitation.
1: And as Alejandro points out, it lasts for one hour. Magic Missile.
3: What are you going to do with Magic Missile?
2: Attack the darkness. <laughs> for when people irritate me just a little bit.
3: Wouldn't will most of us be just a level one commoners with like four hit points, and so wouldn't that just kill somebody?
2: The
1: real problem with Magic Missile is you can see where it came from.
3: You know, I also wouldn't mind heal. Heal would be kind of great.
2: Remove disease.
3: Heal covers that.
2: Shimmy, that's just a cop-out, because Wish can do anything. The problem is, you don't have any experience points to use to power it.
3: You know, if I had teleport without air, I could actually help NASA lift satellites into orbit really, really cheaply.
1: Which works great until the government puts you in a dark cellar so they can cut you up and find out how it works.
3: Good luck holding me.
0: He does have teleportation.
3: That is a valid
1: point. All right.
0: And before we wrap up for the evening, we have one last thing that I want to talk about. We are on our sixth episode of Weaving Myths. We've talked about a lot of different things, and we're actually running out of topics to talk about. So I would like to ask everyone here to think about a topic you would like us to discuss on on the podcast and send it to me, or Colin, or Ruben, or Mordi. Just send it to one of us, and we'll look into talking about it in the future. I believe Colin has just linked the thread for Weaving Myths on Mythweavers.
1: Which is arguably a better way to throw things up, because then on the first post of Weaving Myths, you can see everything we've discussed in the past, everything that's still on the list, and get an idea for if there is stuff you can throw in there still.
0: Absolutely. So I would implore all of you to please go to that thread and post at least one suggestion for what we can talk about in the future to help keep this podcast wonderful and fun and interesting.
2: If you don't want to post it there, Nathan will give his cell phone number next.
0: No. No, I will not.
1: I feel like I've got that somewhere. Oh, wait, I don't... no,
0: it's all of you have mine.
1: Yeah, don't dox
3: the uh, editor.
0: All right. And with that, thank you everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat as always. I'm Nathan and I've been joined by the magnificent Colin,
2: Ruben, and Mordi. Thanks for listening and keep on weaving those myths.